Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff in leadership and power building and help you execute your campaign with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories and inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you highly organised and love working in a fast-paced environment? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, is looking for an executive legal assistant to support a national leader on a 12-month fixed-term contract based in Melbourne, Victoria. This will include coordinating and supporting the leader with high-level administrative assistance, coordinating documents with strong attention to detail, building and managing relationships with key internal and external stakeholders, and providing excellent client service. To apply for that role, simply go to morrisblackburn.com au slash careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your favourite weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. On this week's episode, we're getting towards the end of our state-by-state post-election wrap-up. We're going to do two states in the one hit today. We're going to look at Tasmania and we're going to look at South Australia. We're going to speak to uh, Jack Milroy, uh, who you will have heard on the show before, and they're going to talk to us about how things went in Tasmania. Tough campaign for the guys down in the Apple Isle. And we'll also be speaking to the Labor Party State Secretary in South Australia, Eamon Burke, to talk us through the great result they had on election night when they finally won the seat of Boothby and almost jagged the seat of Sturt and uh, have a bit more of a deep dive into the broader results across across Metro Adelaide. So check out today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcast. Uh, and when you're done listening to today's episode, leave us a review on either podcast, on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And for all of the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a Wednesday afternoon on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. Uh, and now we're moving to uh, a state that is near and dear to my heart, a place I lived there for five years, South Australia, uh, to break down the post-election uh, results in the great state of South Australia. And joining me on the line from Adelaide is the South Australian Labor uh, State Secretary, Eamon Burke. Eamon, welcome to Socially Democratic. Stephen, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I- Last time I saw you was um, obviously on election night uh, in the chaos that was um, and this stupid idea that we had of doing a live telecast. Um, and I think you were in, the, I don't know where you were actually, but I guess you were in the results room and we were basically just trying to get what is going on in Booth because, you know, we were all hoping that Booth would come home um, and uh, it did in the end. Uh, tell us a bit about your election night. How did it pan out for you? Um, well, like um, most sort of party office tally rooms, it's a mixture of complete chaos, probably people... Um, almost vomiting in the corner out of nervousness um, and everything in between. Um, and, you know, it's always quiet for the first sort of half an hour, 45 minutes, especially in South Australia where, um, you know, 
our booths don't close, we start to get the trickle of the, the eastern states and where, you know, results are coming in, but we're, we're a booth piece. And, of course, you know, everyone forgets, uh, ourselves included, that, oh, yeah, we're still half an hour behind. Um, so, yeah, complete sort of chaos. And the initial sort of run um, in Boothby when, it, when results start to come through at about 7.30 our time, 8 o'clock Eastern, um, they looked pretty, they looked very good. Um, you know, the initial run, um, I think the first proper boothing that was sort of important to us was up in Blackwood, which is, for those familiar, sort of in the, the inner hills of, of Adelaide. And it's an area where um, Louise Miller-Frost, the Labor candidate, had worked hard. But what was most pleasing is we knew Nadia Clancy, the previous candidate, um, had worked Blackwood really hard the election before and got a solid result there. So to have a solid result on top of a solid result, that sort of first initial big booth was a very, very good sign. And then it was just holding firm and waiting for results to come sort of through the middle, which you'd call more the, the, the red part of Boothby's obviously down the centre. And for those familiar, it's the bluer parts are on the beach and on the edge of the hills. Um, so we had to sort of sit tight and, um, you know, as the blue areas came through, it looked good, but we just had to sit tight um, for for the, the areas in the spine and some of those results sort of started to come through. And as was probably the case nationwide, those areas that were traditionally more red, the swings weren't quite as strong as in, in general in those sort of blue or, or more sort of um, um, green in the not political sense, but um, green in the... Um, in the sort of climate sort of um, sense. Well, um, we're going to deep dive about Boothby in a, in a moment, but before uh, we do that, just for um, our listeners, let's give us uh, give them a bit of an overview of the the, the statewide results in South Australia. The two party preferred uh, at this moment. I know the count hasn't actually finished, but um, it's a three point four percent swing to Labor on the two party preferred basis. That's a fifty four point one percent two PP for Labor, forty five point nine to the Coalition. Uh, and then on a um, on a primary count, the coalition uh, are on uh, uh, they had a five and five point two percent swing against them on their primary, and obviously lost a seat, reducing them to three. Labor had a one percent swing against its primary, but obviously picked up that seat in Boothby, which we'll talk about in a moment. The Greens had a three percent swing to them and took their primary to twelve and a bit. Four uh, percent swing to One Nation to bring it up to four point eight. Uh, an actual swing against. United Palmer to drag their vote down to about 3.9 and then others was also a swing against others of uh, half a percent which took them to 8.6. Broadly speaking across the state um, what do you draw from those from that uh, that set of numbers and also just keeping in mind the fact that you've literally just come off a hard-fought South Australian state election campaign um, looking at those figures there I mean does that really does that does that align similar to the state result or is there some, some discrepancies? So obviously in a general sense, it roughly aligns. I think one of our concerns um, coming out of the state election and backing straight into a Fed was what was sort of the jet stream out of the state election. And as we all know, pandemic politics had meant state election, state politics had come to the forefront of people's minds more so than Fed. So it was almost an inverse of, of tradition and it was a bit of an unknown as to yeah what the jet stream would be um and i think we still haven't i haven't probably got a complete answer in my mind yet but needless to say i think there was significant momentum to labor at a state level for various reasons and in a rough sense 
we were able through the federal campaign to you know to carry that momentum on in a, in a pretty general sense across the state um, and that's reflected in in overall in the sort of statewide two-party preferred um, we were getting um, decent traction in areas that we otherwise wouldn't um, Sturt which is another eastern suburbs blue ribbon seat um, came strongly our way um, Boothby which we'll obviously deep dive into had been campaigned out like you know there wasn't a mark there wasn't a voter hadn't been campaigned to in the last 15 years um so yeah coming out of a state election we weren't quite sure where people where voters minds were going to be at it could have been easily oh yeah we've just we've just risked it all with Malinowskis. we're not we're not gonna we're gonna hedge our bets that was a pretty you know there was some rational thought um around that but thankfully i think the statewide momentum out of state carried roughly through um, federally in a roundabout way. There was a few independents floating around out in, um, out in um, particularly in Grey, which is sort of um, a really large part of South Australia, takes in the Spencer Gulf and everywhere else. And that meant, um, you know, the Liberals were sort of tied up defending their home bases. Um, and we were able to sort of keep rolling on in Metro Adelaide. In previous uh, federal election campaigns in South Australia, certainly when I lived there, um, there was both an offensive and a defensive setting for the Labor campaign. I mean, trying to, um, once Labor won Adelaide and Highmarsh, there was always a need to defend and seriously defend those seats. Plus, obviously, looking at picking up a seat like Boothby, as you mentioned before, and as we talked ad nauseum on the, on, the, on the night, it's a seat that Labor's uh, prized for a long, long time. Um, going to this campaign, was there any kind of defensive uh, setting or did you feel confident about the, the turf that Labor held and just let those local campaigns do their thing and it was basically putting all resources into trying to secure Boothby? Yeah, absolutely, Ladder. It was 100% all in on Boothby and then that was the first order. Boothby was the second order and Boothby was the third order and then maybe then the fourth order priority was, um, you know, Sturt, Senate-wide campaign, but we were confident with our incumbents. And I think one one thing that served us well straight out of the state election is there was a fair, wide, fair statewide momentum to us, and we got really close on a couple of unexpected seats. But the seats that we needed to win, which are our five key targets, we never took our eye off them in the state election. So I was just applying that same logic, but instead of doing it to five seats, um, what Boothby needed and wanted, in a relative sense, it got because... I, I used to sort of joke we'd been chasing the mirage in the desert in Boothby, yeah, so the better part of since 2007, and we were finally there. We weren't going to let this mirage disappear on us this time. So, yeah, absolutely whatever it took. And to be honest, that will cause some internal criticism around, you know, we did get very close in Sturt, and there's going to be people who ask legitimate what-if questions. Um, but I would have rather, you know, this is probably harsh, but... I'd rather win Boothby by 5,000 votes um, than lose it by one. So that was the simple rationale. It's funny, you know, it's funny you say you get criticism because my feeling has always been externally since I've moved back to Melbourne from South Australia and there's something that I'd always admired about the South Australian campaign was the, the, uh, the concentration that the campaign has always put on the seats that you need to win to either hold government or win back government. Um, a frustration that I had as a former party official was when, you know, the secretary would come in and, you know, 
suggest are oh, we're going to reallocate resources to other seats because of more you know more data or information has been coming in um as if you can just pick up you know two thousand volunteers and just dump them into another seat like on a, on a monopoly board or something it should give them the shit um but there is there's always been a good focus from you guys about well no no this is the seat we're going to go after and this is we're going to execute this all the way up until uh, election day let's talk about boothby um, what do you think going into this campaign, what did you need to do to turn this mirage into a reality? Um, a lot of the groundwork had sort of the, the solid foundation had legitimately been laid by candidates previous, um, very much so Nadia Clancy just beforehand, who then became a state MP um, um, in the state election just previous. So she, Nadia had laid a lot of groundwork as had other candidates. So you know, there wasn't, as I said before, a target voter who hadn't been campaigned to in the last 10 years. So it was just, it wasn't any miracle working. It wasn't any strategic genius. It was just hard work. And, you know, that's what most marginal seats come down to. It's, it's campaigning's not hard. Campaigning's just hard work. And Louise Miller-Frost um, is a slightly different in a sense of, She's not an institutionalised um, Labor person in the sense of, you know, she hadn't been a Labor member that long. Um, you know, she hadn't been come up through the system, so to speak, which sometimes we're criticised for. She had a, a pretty impressive background working for um, non-profits. So there was an absolute quality candidate. And that's not taking away, that's not to suggest previous candidates weren't quality, but she was slightly different. And... That presented a risk because she was slightly green to campaigning. But with that, I think Louise was open to every and all suggestions. And when a suggestion was made to her, she did it, she learnt from it and made it work. Um, so, yeah, it was just the, the hard grind. And it, it became a campaign in two bits for, for Louise and, and the Boothby campaign. Um, and there's a few names I should probably mention more so than none more so than Tom Mooney, who was a campaign manager, whilst also um, um, volunteering as a campaign manager, but also working um, as Penny Wong's chief of staff. So he had two pretty significant roles taking place simultaneously. But a, a campaign in almost two bits. The pre-Christmas part, um, which was laying the foundation name recognition. And then to Louise's and the campaign's credit and to all our federal team, everyone sort of, from a federal sense, relatively speaking, went quiet because the state campaign kicked underway in January. And even if they'd wanted to, there was no oxygen available because of the state campaign and the prominence of, of state politics. So it wasn't sort of a hiatus, but Louise kept chipping away, involving herself in state campaigning um, activities as best she could. And then it was, I know this always happens, but it was a triple sprint um, at the end, right? Those last eight weeks, nine weeks after the state election, you had to camp. You had to pack five months of work into it because you lost. Basically, hadn't really been able to cut through since December. Um, but yeah, no miracle, um, strategic genius. Just sheer graft, hard work. It is hard work. How much um, did you factor in, or did you notice uh, volunteer fatigue coming off the back of uh, the state election campaign? I remember standing at the um, Adelaide Oval post party and just talking to a lot of volunteers. In at the end of the state election, and uh, you know, people were knackered, like they really put everything into it. And I was just sort of thinking, geez, how are you going to get up for you know for Boothby um, in uh, eight weeks' time? Yeah, there there was definitely a level of fatigue, um, and 
coupled with that, you know, many good volunteers, um, many good staffers um, moved on to state government who had been, you know, on that ride for four years. They're trying to set up a state government and, you know, working harder than ever. You can't then ask them to do the simple stuff like, can you go letterboxing? Can you go door knocking? They've probably got a legitimate reason to say, no thanks, um, because I'm trying to, you know, set up a government. Um, so there was definitely a level of fatigue. Um, that probably impacted, and we deliberately so, impacted much more every other seat than Boothby. We were able to sort of ring fence, quarantine Boothby, and, and that's, more, that's more credit to the Boothby campaign and the Boothby FEC, so the Boothby um, ALP members, where um, they, the diesel engine was purring from a volunteering point of view, and we... We just didn't, there was no point, there wasn't changing gears. Everyone just kept the, kept the diesel engine revving high and made it through another eight weeks. Um, but that did have an impact on, to be perfectly honest, on Sturt, um, where we got very close, but we just didn't have the level of volunteers because everyone was, was legitimately stretched um, elsewhere. Looking at the, uh, just flipping over to the Sturt results, um, the most recent uh, count, Labor on a two-page preferred is at 50, sorry forty-nine point three percent, a couple of thousand votes just behind um, the Liberal uh, incumbent James Stevens. Um, I mean, when did you think? Did you have any sense that Sturt was going to be as close as it was during the campaign? Only probably three weeks out. Um, there was a public opinion poll that had come out, or two of them had come out in around that time, and it was probably. Only then, where we had, we were comfortable that all all resources that we reasonably had available to us were deployed in Boothby, and we we're doing all we could reasonably do in Boothby, and then we could start to deploy excess resources. And they weren't really on the; there weren't too many you could deploy on the ground. It was more we could, you know, buy some more digital, purchase another mail out, um, do a few more ads, those type of purchase resource allocation decisions as opposed to, to staff um, staffing sort of volunteer arrangements. Um, it was only, yeah, sort of those sort of three weeks out that you, we were sort of not confident in Boothby, but confident that we, could, we were doing all we reasonably could um, in Boothby and allowed us to turn our mind to Sturt. But that's probably when I, and probably in hindsight, I should have been more aware of how stretched. That's when I came to the realization of, oh gosh, we are we are stretched and fatigued here, and we just didn't have the, the staff volunteer resources to deploy because, yeah, as I said previously, many of them were busy forming a state government um, or already deployed in Boothby. Any other sort of uh, positives that you want to reflect on that came out of the federal campaign in South Australia? Um, if, I, I was interested to note that, you know, Amanda Rishworth, for example, in Kingston, who when she first won that seat, that was, uh, you know, that was a knife fight for her. I remember her working really hard to get elected in there and now she almost won on primaries. That's a great result for Amanda down in uh, Kingston. Yeah, back in 07, she won it back um, for us and through again hard graft and Amanda being Amanda has now shifted into one of the safest seats in the country and with no real significant boundary changes either. It just, it is basically predominantly on the same boundaries that it was in 07. Um, so yeah, Amanda is the exemplar when it comes down to an MP who can walk and chew gum. They can do, you know, the important stuff at a policy level, being a shadow minister and now, hope, and now a minister. 
but also turn up at the left local surf lifesaving club and you know on the on the saturday morning and 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 win votes day in day out that way um so yeah amanda took care of herself there was a transition seat um where we potentially so in the northern suburbs of adelaide the seat of spence um nick champion was stepping down and we had matt bernell um stepping in and matt was left to his own devices through no real fault of his own other than boothby gets all the priority um and there were sort of you know to be crude or general very generalistic there was sort of um an avenue for One Nation UAP out there around sort of anti-vax, um, and equally that 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 problem that we have around the disaffected, so to speak, working-class heartland that have been slowly withering away from us. So that was always one that we had to keep watching the back of our mind because Liberals were running completely dead in Spence. I think they pre-selected their candidate um, after we had pre-selected our candidate in Barker, which is sort of Barker's at the other end of the spectrum for us. Um, which and I think they put up, you know, four core flutes or four posters on the polls, and yeah, they were running completely dead. So there was sort of a, a slight concern as where's the Liberal primary slip, and where does One Nation or UAP end up? So yeah, to not have to really worry about them in the end um, meant that Boothby again was able to sort of absorb all the focus. But that goes to that goes to credit of people, yeah, like Amanda, like Mark Butler, Steve Drajanis, the whole gang who just got on with it, knew Boothby was the main game, and equally, Sonia Byram and Sturt. Never once did she complain about, hey, can I have one more volunteer? She did her role um, as a team player um, to the nth degree. Looking at the um, results, actually, in um, in the seat of Spence, uh, you're right, the Liberal candidate, let's look at his headshot, looks like a child um, with a really bad uh, sort of pointer moustache. Um, but looking at the uh, the first preferences, the primary vote for the candidates was a, sw- a swing of 7% against uh, Matt, the Labor candidate, um, but we saw a 4.4% swing to the Greens and a 10.9%, so almost 11% swing to One Nation. A candidate by the name of Linda Champion, I'm actually just wondering whether or not there was a, maybe some level of confusion as well, given that the previous member was a champion, both in name and in personality. Um, do we? Uh, what, what's your read on what's happening in the outer suburbs of Adelaide amongst the sort of the traditional Labor heartland and Spence takes in, you know, the suburbs of Elizabeth and Salisbury and whatnot? What's your takeaway? I know it's early, but I want to get a sense of what's your thoughts about it. Is this a standalone result or is it something we need to keep an eye on? Um, no, it's definitely something we need to keep an eye on because I think it is the general sort of problem that we have to identify is, you know, Spence is the classic working class blue collar base. It's for those out of town, it's where Holden grew up. Like it is the Elizabeth plant of General Motors Holden is in the middle of Spence. It is dripping blue collar working class um, Australia, suburban Australia that obviously, especially with manufacturing declining, has confronted, you know, 15, if not 30 years of, you know, trauma to their communities that is hard to comprehend unless, you know, that, you know, there was generations of families who had worked at Holden's, you know, and you used to walk up, walk down the shops out of Elizabeth and every fourth person in that shop, or sorry, in the shopping mall would be in a Holden uniform picking up groceries on the way after work. And, you know, the people in the deli were employed because, you know, Holden's was down the road and so forth. So the trauma, 
not Holden's is just one example of the much the, the manufacturing that was taking place out there over the last 30 years that slowly dripped away. So we definitely do have, you know, that collective problem that is an example in 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 really large numbers in Spence. But equally in a seat like Metro Adelaide, because Adelaide's relatively small in the sense of the overall um, city, the seat of Adelaide um, it sort of takes in what you'd call an inner city, but equally um, the working class northern belt. So there is a pincer movement happening where at, in the southern half of the federal Adelaide seat, you know, we're getting eaten out by the Greens with a primary potentially in some blues approaching 25%, even slightly higher. And then slowly in our working class heartland of federal Adelaide in the north, um, losing drip by drip voters at every election. And that's not a criticism so much of the NP. Um, that's just a, a sort of a, the general trend. Um, and Adelaide is an example of that at both ends. And Spence is probably the most obvious example in the sort of working class end. Um, if you have the answer, Stephen, or anyone on the podcast, please pick up the phone because I'm sure we're all ears. I mean, I, I did know that I did want to ask you about uh, some of the challenges and Adelaide was one that I wanted to kind of draw your attention on. So I'm glad you lifted that up, sort of seeing see that swing to the Greens on a primary. Are we talking like uh, parts of Mile End and Thebiton that the, we're seeing them make gains? I think their swing to them on their primary vote in the seat of Adelaide was 4.4%, but we also saw a 3% swing to One Nation in the seat of Adelaide as well around that, I'm assuming around Kilburn and the Northern Valley electorate. I mean, yeah, the answer, I don't know. Like, I mean, we've sort of been doing a whole bunch of these episodes with folks um, across the country, colleagues of uh, yours and mine. One of my theories is that um, we saw swings to, certainly in Victoria and in New South Wales, we've seen swings to Labor on our primary vote where they were a marginal targeted seat. So they got the central resources from the national or the state campaign. And also they most likely had a direct voter contact program. So there were physically Labor volunteers knocking on the doors of targeted, undecided or persuadable voters and having a meaningful values-based conversation with them. Historically, when you're at a safe Labor seat, you don't do that. You, you're relying on, I guess, the aerial campaign or the national campaign and maybe you do the odd mail out or whatever. But that's kind of just been the general rule of thumb about the way you campaign. My initial takeaway from all of this experience is that, that those seats can't do that anymore that they're going to have to actually use the resources that they've got. They're probably not going to get money in. <laughs> Looking at you as the, now the, the party secretary in South Australia, you could probably answer this question, but I don't know if you have the resources to then allocate to make sure that we win Boothby. And I'm going to ask you in a moment about what the future looks like going into the 2025 campaign, but you've got to allocate resources where you need to hold them. Perhaps the answer is that you have to say to the Steve Janices of this world um, that you're going to have to build your own campaign infrastructure and run up as a marginal seat campaign, but based on your own resources that you'll have to build up over three years' time and also not put people out on the doors four weeks after the campaign, but start that process of volunteer uh, organisation and mobilisation three years out. I, I want to get your thoughts on that. No, Stephen, I think you're, yeah, you're, you're spot on. And the example of Federal Adelaide has always been a bit tricky because um, the seat got cut up drastically in a redistribution, which meant um, Steve Georgianis, who's been a long-term federal MP um, in what used to be sort of the western suburbs, the seat of Adelaide and Highmarsh got merged. So Steve has a good base. He lost his best base, so well, kept half of his good base and then um, only had a limited time to, to sort of build up his base in those new areas that hadn't, you know, hadn't legitimately 
seen him as an MP despite him being in, in Parliament and working hard for many years. So I think it's Steve now has, you know, the time and the office to do that. And you are right, it, it's got to start now. It means using your office resources appropriately and smartly to be out and about. And this is not directed at Steve or his office. This is just in general, you know, you, we have to move away from that transactional or the phone rings in the electoral office and we'll solve your problem to, you know, being using um, the resources of an office because MPs are definitely out there, but it's using the resources of, the, of an office to garner volunteers assisted with party office um, to be out and about. And I think if a little bit of um, opinion here or off script, um, I'm relatively new to the role. The only good thing about having back-to-back -back elections is it does now mean there isn't an election around the corner for us in South Australia, obviously different in other states, but we have a bit of breathing space to do the second order priorities. You know, we're here to win elections and invariably that is the first, second and third priority. And, you know, the next things that should be up the order but always fall off the to-do list are, yeah, growing volunteers. And I know Stephen and the Victorian branch, you've always ensured over the last decade that that hasn't slipped. Um, or has always been front and centre because good volunteers win your election. So I think over the next two years in SA, without an, an election bearing down us, we probably have the time and now the resources to to make to try and replicate um, in some shape or form what what Victoria now has done regularly for four or five state and federal elections. Yeah, it's in, you're in a weird spot because your next poll is a federal poll again, most yeah. likely. Yeah. Uh, it will be happening because you've got yeah. fixed terms over there. So. Uh, you, you do have some breathing space to start to actually build some of that infrastructure, um, which will be exciting to see. Final thoughts or key learnings from the campaign before we wrap up? Um, it's, uh, my head is still a bit fuzzy from it all. So I'm trying, you, I'm maybe a little bit too simple in the sense of my key learning is what I probably know to be true is hard work pays off. Um, I was probably a little bit pessimistic over the last few years around Boothby. So it does show that hard work does pay off and we've been doing it for 15 years. So if there's anyone else out there and that have been chipping away, um, continue chipping away. Cause sometimes it does, you know, with a slight demographic shift with the slight change in mood and all those pieces that are sometimes a little bit out of your control when they line up and you've done the hard work and you've got the foundation, then, then you're, then you're 90% of the way there. Um, my only sort of, I suppose, closing remarks would be we're very lucky in South Australia in the sense that we are a small state, so we don't have a wide field. Um, I'm confident that we'll be a good government. I'm confident that Louise Miller-Frost will be an excellent MP. That's not to say we'll ignore Boothby, but it means I think Boothby um, will have resources that it needs. Um, but all things being equal, the kitchen sink's coming towards Sturt next time. and. Um, yeah, that's that's the next that's the next one that we have to chip away at, and that's what we'll get started on. Um, we've got a state by election happening now, so it will give us four or five weeks of get through that, and then we'll turn our mind to um, winning Sturt, defending Boothby, and re-electing an Albo government in three years' time. And then a Malinowskis one as well. Um, well, it's been a great story to come out of South Australia. Um, you know, obviously jagging Booth, but also now having the majority of the federal seats in that South Australia sent to the federal parliament is an incredible result. And off the back of the great result that you had in March with uh, the South Australian state election. So, you know, as I've said to you guys before, and I've always talked up the work of the 
South Australian Labor campaign uh, to you and the whole team over there. Well done, great job, and uh, we wish you the best of luck in the uh, in the coming years. Cheers, Stephen. All good. We are now moving to the Apple Isle and joining me on the line from British Columbia, uh, Vancouver, a place that I've never been but I've always wanted to go, to do some election analysis on the Tasmanian results is the Managing Director for Defiance, uh, which is a digital firm that helps progressive and Labor parties to raise money and build power. Jack Milroy, welcome back to Socially Democratic. Thanks, Stephen. It's good to be back as, now, a, as, a, as a living under a majority Labor government. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Uh, it's just, it's sometimes it, it still hasn't sunk in when I'm listening to the news and on the ABC, they might refer to Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. It's still taking a bit of time to, um, but a, a lovely thing to get used to. Um, now, the last time we spoke was on election night um, and we said cheerio to you. Uh, I think you stuck with us for most of the night, which was a fantastic effort, giving us the results from uh, the booths and the seats in Tasmania. And I do recall at the end, because, well, I think by the stage we'd said cheerio to you, we had um, the results from WA coming in. It looked like we were going to form a government. But, you know, it wasn't a great night for uh, the Taswegians. And I did say to you that we'll look forward to you coming back on the show to just dissect uh, some of the results um, of uh, election night in Tasmania. Um, before we do... Uh, do that. I mean, how was it for folks in Tassie on election night? I mean, I sort of mixed emotions. I've been on campaigns where I've um, been on winning campaigns, won uh, against an, a liberal incumbent, but we've lost the election, which is always a weird night because you're happy for your candidate. But then overall, it's not been a great result for Labor. But yeah, the opposite. You had, uh, you know, a whole bunch of races that we wanted to pick up that we didn't, uh, yet we won on election night. So how was the mood in Tassie on, uh, on election night? Yeah, probably as you'd expect. It was, it was, you know, people were pretty disappointed, I think. I mean, obviously, as the night went on and it became clear that we were going to, you know, win the election, then that was, people were excited about that. But, you know, the Tassie results coming in first and, and kind of, you know, trending pretty poorly for us from the beginning uh, kind of coloured the mood, I, I guess, for the rest of the night. And, you know, people had worked hard on those campaigns too, volunteered or, or worked on them or were candidates or whatever. And so I think it's always hard when you, you work so hard on something and, and you see, you know, the results didn't go our way. Um, and then that's kind of mixed or tempered with the, you know, the the elation of actually electing a Labor government, which is what we realised would happen later in the night. So, so definitely mixed. Um, but you know, yeah, disappointment of, of what, and maybe maybe a little bit, um, maybe a little bit shocked. I think might be the emotion that a lot of people felt of what we saw in Tasmania. Well, let's give uh, the folks listening a bit of an overview of the results in Tasmania, starting with the statewide uh, two-party preferred. Uh, Labor has a two party preferred of 50 is that right 53.8 whereas the coalition is a two party preferred of 46.2 is that right that just doesn't i i think that is messed up by the wilkie and lambie um like i think it's a that that measure is not particularly useful i don't think i think the primary is probably the better way to, to yeah, look yeah. at it <laughs> i just looked at that i must admit i cut and paste these out of the abc website dropped it into a run sheet and now i'm reading out loud going that can't be right anyway yes yeah. good point thank you that's why i got you on the show jack just stop me from saying <laughs> stupid things um okay yes you're right let's look at the primary uh vote so the coalition's primary uh, actually, it was a 1.7% uh, swing against them uh, and took their primary down to 329 so just under just a tick under 33%. Labor's primary, however, had a 6.3% swing against it, 
and took its primary down to 27.3. The Greens had a 1.9% swing to it, so it took up to exactly $12. Uh, One Nation had a 1.2% swing to it, up to 4%. United Palmer had a 3% swing against it, and it took it to 1.8. And then the others, there was a 7.9% swing to the others, uh, which brought it up to 22%, which is a huge amount, and we'll unpack that those others um, now. Um, overall reflections, oh, and sorry, seats um, won and changed, no seats changed. It was two to the Coalition, two to Labor, and uh, one to other, which is uh, Andrew Wilkie in the seat of Clark, which is basically Urban Hobart. Overall reflections uh, of the night, um, looking at that primary. Yeah, look, it's the primary is way too low. Um, it remained like six and a half percent swing against us on primaries is is worrying. Um, we're not going to be able to pick up the target seats we need to pick up uh, with that measure. And you know, Andrew Wilkie's not going to be around forever, right? At some point, he will retire, and we need to win back the seat of Clark as well. Um, so you know, like the, the primary is too low. It's largely consistent, um, sadly, with what we got at the state election last year, um, where we also saw uh, a primary around that around that number. Um, uh, we did a little better in the federal in some electorates and we did a little worse in, in others, but generally it's around the same. So it's, it's pointing to a picture of, you know, Labor kind of stuck at around that, you know, 27 to 30% uh, primary vote. Um, yeah, it's just an interesting result. And we'll start to sort of work out where Labor lost uh uh, votes on their primary and that that other I mean the other is obviously made up of both Andrew Wilkie but also uh, the Lambie Jackie Lambie's party ran candidates um, ac- across the state in all five electorates is that right Jack or look that's what, I, I they ran them in all our target seats um, the only question maybe did they run someone in Clark um, I think they did I, I'm pretty sure they ran in all five and they also ran hard in the Senate as well uh, Jackie wasn't up but um, they elected another senator. Um, in Tammy Tyrrell in the Senate, so it was it was a, a statewide push for sure. And um, you know the others the others vote gets a bit skewed because because Wilkie does so well on a primary in in Clark, um, but you know Lambie does very well around the state. Okay, the way that we've been doing these podcasts uh, to this point has been looking at some pluses, some deltas, and some key learnings. And so let's do the pluses first of all. Probably not a great deal of positives to come out of the campaign, but certainly the lines win um, was a great win because on election night we weren't mm. sure about how it was going to go. Uh, it's a huge electorate in itself. It's just the boundaries of it sort of are just south of Launceston and Davenport and go all the way down to just, the, you know, the northern fringes of uh, of Hobart and taking most of the east coast of the island. So it's a huge chunk of land to sort of cover. Mm. Uh, Western Australians who are organising in Kalgoorlie right now are laughing at me about this. Uh, but, um, you know, for Tasmania it's a big plot of land um there was a four uh, percent swing to the libs on the 2pp um we saw a 7.4 percent swing against labor on its primary uh, the candidate uh, incumbent brian mitchell but still managed to, to hang on um what are the positives that we can take from the result in lines yeah look the, the, the lines result was great to to keep that seat and i think one of the things that people should remember is that in the 2019 election the Liberals essentially ran dead because their candidate, I forget the name, but their candidate essentially dropped out 
um, after saying, uh, having some revelations of some things that they'd said, and I don't remember exactly what they were. But so essentially, the Liberals didn't really run a real campaign in 2019. So when you're seeing a 13% swing to the Liberals this time, that's not totally reflective of like what a 13% swing might normally mean. This is a lot of Liberal voters now actually have somewhere to put their vote and didn't last time. So I guess what I'm saying is like that the swing against us in Lions is the result in 2019 was probably a bit inflated because of the Liberals' problems, so we should have expected this to be close. Um, oh, you know, Lambie's, Lambie's candidate still pulled 11% of the primary vote, um, which is which is pretty uh, revealing, I think. And I also think that that electorate is, you know, there's not many Labor electorates anymore in the country that are predominantly rural and semi-rural, small towns, uh, farming communities. The fact that um, Labor was able to hold that hold that seat i think you know in a in a time where our coalition is shifting to to be less reflective of those areas i think is a you know speaks well of the campaign there yeah absolutely and in the end i mean it's knife edge i think uh, i know the count hasn't completely finished but um it's going to wind up around 50.8 percent to pp for labor so less than a percent that um, brian will um, have to defend the seat in 2025 um, and as you said as well, uh, you know, a 10.9% uh, swing to uh, the Lambie Network uh, candidate. It's the first time they're standing, so it's not actually a swing. It's actually they just picked up 10% of the vote or 9, right. 11% of the vote um, is uh, is a worry. But, yes, great point that you make, the fact that it is a rural seat and we uh, managed to hang on to it is an incredible achievement for, for Brian and for the Labor team down in Tassie. Yeah, totally, totally. It was. Um, it, it didn't look good uh, early in the night, but it, it looked a lot better over the next couple of days. So uh, thankful for that. Okay, let's. Um, is there any other pluses you want to take from from the night before we move into some of the deltas? Um, look, you know, I'll just say that the campaign team, you know, obviously worked really hard. Um, I think that the volunteers worked really hard in the in the final weeks. Um, and you know, it's it's tough sometimes. These sometimes there are kind of political forces that are hard to push against, and that feels a little bit like where we were. Um, so, look, I would just say, you know, I always want to give a shout out to all the campaigners, the organisers, you know, the state secretary, campaign director, and everyone who who did that work. Um, uh, obviously there's going to need to be some learnings, but, you know, I saw, I saw a lot of volunteers, you know, out there working hard and, you know, that's always a plus. Um, I mean, I don't know if you got any data on this, but is, did you think that there were more volunteers in this campaign than say in previous cycles? I mean, is there, are we seeing a shift, um, in the, in the volunteer capacity in the Tasmanian party to growing that capacity mm. over cycles? Yeah, look, I couldn't say because this is my first federal election living in Tassie. But what I'll say, so I was I was a vendor. I worked with the with the party on the campaign, doing some digital stuff, predominantly uh, fundraising for them, and also did some uh, online volunteer recruitment through our lists as well um, to help the organising team. And and what I would say is that you know when you've got a state like Tasmania where you've got essentially you know two big population centres and then a lot of kind of rural semi rural areas that still need campaigners and door knockers that is tough because you know it's not that hard to get volunteers in hobart uh clark's not a target seat um obviously launceston is in the target seat of bass and, and people up there can be put to use but you know a lot of people live in hobart um so what i would say is it's a, it's often about distribution and where people are so i think the challenge uh going forward is going to be how do we how do we mobilize the volunteers that we have where they are and not ask them to do things that are, can you drive out to so-and-so, to Sorrel, to do door knocking. A lot of people just don't want to do that, and that's fair enough. So we need to find ways to plug those people in, either from home or in their local neighborhood, and allow them to take action there. Um, 
And I think that's how we grow our volunteer capacity over time. Um, but, you know, it, it is a challenge when you've got the population kind of distribution that we have in Tasmania. It sounds like a distributed snowflake leadership model might come in handy for the Tasmanian branch uh, going forward. It absolutely does. Uh, it absolutely expensive, but uh, I think necessary. <laughs> well, I'm sure we something out. Um, okay, let's talk about some of the deltas uh, from, from, from the campaign, starting with Bass. Um, at the LP primary um, was at 28.6%, which is just too low and asking way too much to get the count to 50.1%. Um, tell us a bit about Bass and uh, some of the challenges that we had in that particular race. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Bass was, was tough and was always going to be tough, when, I, I guess, at the point that Bridget Archer made the Liberal uh, incumbent MP made the decision to kind of pretty decisively break with Scott Morrison on a few key issues. Um, my, my intuition is that if she hadn't done that, uh, we would, you know, Ross Hart would have won that seat back. Um, but, you know, I guess credit to her, you know, political um, mind, knowing that that was the way to distinguish herself from a pretty toxic liberal brand. Um, so that that's one thing. I think that they had a good candidate um, who made some smart decisions. Um, the, the 28%, we were 29% primary, yeah, is obviously too low. Um, some context too is that in Bass, the Lambie network was preferencing the liberals in Bass. They preferenced us in Braddon, I believe, and Lions, I think. Um, but Bass obviously is the one we, we really wanted it the most. So that, that didn't go, that didn't help. You're certainly not going to get from 29% to 50%, um, you know, without the Lambie network probably. So, um, you know, we, we did well to come close. It's clearly a competitive area. It's clearly somewhere we are going to need to throw a lot of resources and time into over the next few years um, as we go up to the next state election as well. Uh, but yeah, that primary is just too low. Um, and, you know, Bridget Archer is a, is a good campaigner and clearly is liked in the community. I'm, I'm interested to actually get a sense. I never really bothered to sort of read into why the Lambie Network were hedging their bets across the seats. Why did they send their preferences to the Liberal Party in Bass as opposed to what they did in Braddon? Um, I don't know exactly what, why they made the decision to you know, preference Labor in some and Liberals in, in others, I believe, uh, and I wasn't involved in the negotiations, but I believe it was tied up with the Senate um, seat and negotiations around preferences for the Senate. I believe there was a whole complicated thing around that and, you know, our negotiators were able to to get preferences in, in, most, of, in most of the seats, but um, for some reason, whether it was preserve relationships with the Liberal Party or I'm not sure if Jackie and Bridget have a relationship, um, they decided in Bass to go the other way, and, and I guess they kind of they kind of sold that as you know we we oppose Morrison, and so generally we're preferencing Labor, although you know in the most marginal seat they didn't. So you can kind of you can kind of ask yourself how much that is worth. Um, but you know it's not something that received a lot of media coverage in Tasmania during the campaign. If we can turn to the seat of Braddon, which was another difficult. Uh, uh, count for us on election night with swings against Labor of almost 10% on its primary, 6% swings to the Libs uh, and the Lambie candidate and an independent grabbing a uh, combined primary vote of 18%. Um, and one thing I did notice that there were swings of up to 12% against the Labor Party in urban booths in Davenport and in Burnie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, where I would, and most of that seemed to have been going to the Lambie Party or the independent uh, I'm assuming that these are our people. Well, historically, these have been our people, and if we're going to if we're going to win Braddon, we need to make sure these people vote for us in a primary. What, what's going on there, Braddon? Yeah, hugely worrying. If, if we're seeing swings like that away from us in Burnie and Davenport, uh, we're not going to make that up in the more rural areas. That's just not going to happen. Um, 
you know, Braden, I think we thought Braden would be closer than this. I think we always knew Braden would be harder to, to win than Bass and we'd come closer or it'd be easier in Bass. But I think that the scale of the swing maybe is a little surprising. Um, I think demographically, you know, you've got to take a step back and look at the, the overall demographics of places like Braden and where does the Labor Party nationally do well? And it is not in places like uh, Braden anymore. Um, a lot of the kind of what the Americans might call the white working class is moving away from Labor and parking their votes with, you know, with Lambie or One Nation or even sometimes with the Liberals. Um, and so that that makes those seats quite hard. And I don't think it was anything necessarily about the campaign there. Uh, the candidate was a really good candidate, was well-known and well-liked and had a long history there. Um, so the, that that wasn't an issue. And, you know, I know worked hard. Um, I just think those demographics are getting really, really tough for the Labor Party. Um, and our expectations around where we can win, um, we should probably take we should probably take a bit of a lead from what happened on the mainland um, and learn a little bit about which parts of the coalition are moving towards us and which are moving away from us and what that might mean for, for where we target in Tasmania. I've, not, I've never been to the northern part of Tasmania. Talk to me about the communities that live in places like Davenport and Burnie. I mean, if they were traditionally working-class Labor voters, what kind of jobs do they have or did they have and what's driving them away from labor now yeah look look i'm not from up there and i and i and, and there are other people who can speak to that with more authority i am a i'm a southerner so um I, I would want to speak for people in the north um but look uh, in those in those towns cities um look there's a there's a kind of post-industrial kind of um working class i think that there are still a lot of resource jobs um up there um or there there's a legacy of resource jobs i, I think um People in the party in Tasmania will tell you that um, the minority government that Labor had at the state level with the Greens uh, and some of the decisions around forestry, this is well before my time, so I don't know it well, um, has a legacy um, that can sometimes maybe tarnish Labor's brand among some of those communities. I don't know how accurate it would be to say that that's still a factor now, 20 or 30 years later, but that's what people say. Um, I think the other thing is you've also got, you've also got population up there in certain parts of the northwest growing a lot of the smaller towns along the coast towns like penguin and um you know there's a, there's a lot of places along there that people are moving either from the mainland or from launceston or hobart um they're getting beachfront you know properties it's absolutely beautiful up there it's a stunning part of the world and so there is some population shifts happening up there um that are that are changing the demographics a bit um but you know they're the kind of small numbers compared to the people that you know the populations in in the bigger centers so um I think it's reflective of um, Labor's challenge with uh, working class, uh, you know, predominantly white working class voters across the country. Um, if that's the case and we're seeing a swing against us uh, in our traditional working class base and, you know, what we saw on the mainland was swings against us. Actually, to be fair, what we've discovered across the course of this, this, this series of podcasts is that there's swings against Labor on its primary basically everywhere. Um, out of suburban, it's been swinging to sort of One Nation and, and Palmer, and in the inner city, it's been swinging to the green. So I think we're having a problem <coughs> with our primary vote um, everywhere at this, at this particular election. And I think one of the things we did note that was that we certainly in WA, in, in Victoria, in New South Wales, in South Australia, that we saw swings to us on our primary vote where we ran a, an actual marginal seat campaign that had a field program. Um, but we saw swings against us everywhere in Tasmania. 
uh, Julie Collins had a swing against her on a primary of 7%. Um, in uh, the seat of Clark, which basically is Hobart. And you and I were talking off air beforehand. Uh, I was down in Hobart uh, two weekends ago. Everyone looks like a greenie uh, walking around the parts of South Hobart that I was in. Um, you know, swings against Labor there. So we're losing, we're having swings against us both in our, in our, in our Labor base, but also in our sort of, I guess I'd call that sort of that post Whitlam academic educated uh, middle class base as well. Um, but yet we ran target seats in Tasmania. This is the only place that bucks my theory is that where you have a well-resourced marginal seat campaign that you are going to get swings. If you go and knock on people's doors and you have conversations, meaningful values-based conversations with folks, they will consider voting for you and we see swings to us on our primary. This didn't happen in Tasmania. What's going mm. on? Yeah, so I think there's two things there. There's the coalition, you know, who are the, who is the, who are the voters in our coalition and how they're shifting? And then there is the the campaign itself and the field campaign and the, the resourcing of it. So I'll, I'll kind of take each of them. So... You're absolutely right. Like there's no, there's no social democratic center left, you know, um, uh, liberal progressive, however you want to define it, um, political party in the Westminster world that wins without support from the working class, from the diversifying working class and uh, middle-class uh, professionals, women, um, you know, uh, university and tertiary educated people. That doesn't happen. You know, that that's the basis of Justin Trudeau's success. It's the basis of Jacinda Ardern's success. It's the basis of, Dan Andrews success. It happens that that's the formula. Um, in Tasmania, we are losing um, we are losing some of our traditional working class voters, and we have over a period of you know a decade. Um, but we are not replacing them with uh, voters from that kind of urban educated middle class uh, bucket. Um, and and you know people might hear that and say, oh well, you want to abandon the working class, and that's not absolutely not what what's happening. I want to win elections, um, and you have to be additive in in politics to win. Um, and so what I think uh, I was struck by moving to Hobart a few years ago was that this isn't a labour town. Um, when everything demographically about it says it should be a labour town, so I think that is I think that is interesting. Um, and when it comes to the the field campaign stuff. So we ran marginal seat campaigns for sure. And there was, there was investment over the, you know, the obviously the six weeks, but then, you know, a couple of months prior as well. But what we, what we don't have in the Tasmanian branches is a culture of community organizing or constant campaigning or kind of field. We don't have that culture. Um, and it, it's not because people don't agree with it or think it would be good. We, we have a resourcing problem in Tasmania in that, the, the party nationally often relies on uh, Labor in Tasmania to get us over the line in close elections. Now, we are lucky in this election that WA provided that role that Tasmania would normally provide. So that's fantastic. But WA is at its high water mark. We are not going to win all those seats back uh, in the next election, although we'll try hard to defend them, but it'll be a different political climate by then. Um, and so then the focus will have to come back to Tasmania. And I guess what I would kind of, my kind of take on this is that if the National Party is kind of relying on us, and, and they are, and I understand why, um, you know, we need the resources to have more than one or two people employed by the Tasmanian branch. We need field organisers. We need people to work on digital. We need, you know, we need the resources to run in a kind of big, kind of div not geographically big, but diverse and complicated state. Uh, and we need to be making those investments now and building those field programs now. And, and so, that's what will make us competitive next time. Um, 
and the branch does well fundraising, um, but it's a small fundraising base. It's a it's a, a lower income state, and it's just smaller. The the unions are smaller, the affiliates are smaller. Um, there's less fundraising to be had. Um, so you know we're absolutely maximizing the fundraising. You know I did the online fundraising, and, and, and the state secretary Stewart does great work doing the doing the other fundraising. But we also need investment, I think, from from the national party if we're going to be relied upon to to kind of bring home these close elections. Well, hopefully Paul Erickson's listened to this podcast and I might hear your uh, request. Um, the, uh, the, look, talk about Hobart. I'm interested. I just want to pick up on this that point you said before. It looks like a Labor town, but it's not a Labor town. And obviously Andrew Wilkie's held the seat now for a number of years. I think he won. Did he win it in 2010? He did win it. Whatever the minority, the minority year was, whenever that yeah. was. Yeah, yeah, two, 2010. And had, and had held it ever since, and has, is holding it quite comfortably on a two PP. I think he holds it by seventy percent. Um, two PP yeah. for, for for his as his part his party him as an independent. Um, what's going on in Hobart? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question because because like all the all the data points would suggest that this should be a Labor town, and then you could say, well, Wilkie's really popular. When he goes, you would you would assume we would rever- would revert to the fundamentals. You, that's what you would assume. You assume Wilkie retires, and then you know Labor nominates uh, you know a great candidate, and we're back to being uh, you know pretty you know to holding the seat again or being extremely competitive, where we're not competitive at all right now. But I don't know that that's necessarily the case because what you've I mean also what you've seen you know Wilkie's kind of like an early teal, like he's like an OG teal. Um, in a lot of ways, right? Except he's kind of cranky and, and a man. Um, he's he's certainly not. <laughs> he certainly doesn't have like the, the dynamism of some of the teal candidates that that kind of slayed dragons on the mainland. But I think that there's a there, there's a there's a lot of focus in Tasmania on Braddon and Bass um, the, at the state level as well. Um, and there's there's less of a focus building the infrastructure long term that you need to win in you know, Hobart and Clark. Um, and I think that's something that, that we kind of need to look at and that, you know, something that people might find um, interesting about Tasmania is that a Labor can, we don't run Labor candidates for council. Um, they run as independents, but, you know, we, you know who's Labor, right, because they're in your branch, but, um, but we don't run Labor campaigns. And, and, you know, at least my kind of theory of politics is that you want Labor to be everywhere all the time and always showing up for people um, and also building your bench and building your next generation of candidates. So, I I think that's something that we could look at in in Hobart uh, and the, and the cities that make up Clark, you know, Glenorchy and, and the other cities, um, to build our build our power there. I hope that we look at that. Um, but Hobart Hobart has you know each of the three kind of um, constituencies that I think about. So it's got it's got you know working class voters in the northern suburbs. It's got um, uh, small G Greens who are sometimes capital G Greens that are Enviro voters. Um, and then it's got um, kind of middle class, urban, tertiary educated, you know, you know, liberal progressives, um, and and we we're kind of not assembling the coalition that we need out of those three constituencies, and and I think that that's something we need to look at pretty hard in, in Hobart. Looking at the um, the comparison between the state election results uh, in two thousand twenty one and the federal election results in two thousand twenty two at a primary vote level, uh, one of the great things about um, the way that the seats are structured in Tasmania, um, for folks that may not know this, but the state election, the state, the state boundaries, the state divisions in Tasmania are the same as the feds. There's Bass, Braddon, Lyons, Clark, and Franklin. The only difference is, is that they have a um, hair Clark system where multiple candidates can get elected 
um, out of the one state division. But if we were to compare Bass between the two results uh, in the state election in 2021 and the federal election 2022, there's a two-point difference. We're 2% better in um, the Fed than we were in the state, but still not a lot. Like it's 28, it's 26 versus 28. In Braddon, um, we were worse off in the Fed. Uh, it's 26 in the state, 22% primary in the uh, in the Fed. In Lyons, uh, 32% in the state primary, 29 in the Fed. Uh, Clark, 22% in the state primary, 18 in the Fed. And Franklin, um, which is the safest of Labor seats, 33% in the state primary, 36% in the Fed. You imagine maybe Julie Collins might have, have a personal vote there. Looking at those numbers, though, broadly speaking, they're very, very similar across the board. And I'm just wondering, does Labor have a is, – is the brand Labor struggling in Tasmania right now? And I've got all these candidates busting, busting their guts to try and get a result, but hmm. it's actually the, it's the colour of the ticket that's hurting them a bit. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think you, 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 it, it'd be disingenuous to say no. It's been a rough couple of years for the Labor Party in Tasmania, um, you know, from – from the state election, you know, the early state election onwards, um, it's it's been a tough time. Um, our our brand, I think, was I think we were rebuilding our brand at a state level, and you know, Leader Rebecca White was doing extremely well in the polls before COVID hit, um, and then of course we you know we suffered from every, what every opposition suffered during COVID, um, and then there's there's a you know there's there's bad blood in the branch too. There's there's conflicts, there's tensions, personality things, there's stuff that has spilled out into the public um, that you know I don't think voters particularly love. Um, but I will say that we have we have, where we have incumbents in those state seats. You know they tend to do quite well. We have incumbents around the state, um, and so once people elect Labor members, they tend to they tend to stick around and they tend to keep their seats. So I think there's something in that. Um, and I and I am hopeful that now that we've kind of cleared these two election cycles, which were within a year, and we have three years until our next election, although we have two elections in that year, which will be wild, um, uh, hopeful that this kind of rebuilding process and, and some of the brand, you know, resetting the brand can happen. Um, but that, that'll kind of need to be done kind of intentionally. Um, so, you know, yeah, it'd, it'd be crazy to say we didn't have challenges, but plenty of branches have turned around those challenges. You know, New South Wales has turned around, has turned that around in the last year, I would say, under under Minz's leadership. Um, and it's, it's obviously happened in other places too. So definitely some brand issues, but, you know, I'm hopeful that we've got the space now to, to kind of work on those. Let's get to the uh, sort of the wrap up part of the podcast, which is we talk about the key key learnings or key takeaways. Where do you see um, where the party in Tasmania can start to make some inroads, some improvements, and what are sort of some of the lessons you would take from this uh, from this result? Yeah, look, I actually think there's kind of three. I think there's three things we can do as a, as a party and as a branch in the next couple of years to get us in a winning position for the next state election or you know and and, and the federal election. So. The, the first one is the resourcing one I mentioned earlier. We've got to get more resources into the branch through various different means and, and methods. And, you know, we'll continue fundraising, we'll online fundraise, we'll do other fundraising. But we also, I think, need outside investment in the party from outside. Um, and, 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 and if we do that, we can build our internal capacity as a party to be campaigning constantly um, and to be doing the type of stuff you need to do to be kind of really match fit for a campaign. You know, at the moment, um, with the, the current resourcing that we have, you know, the staff are, and the and the state secretary are working extremely hard just to keep the kind of show running, just to keep it moving and do the governance and, and, and stuff like that. 
Um, so, so we need resources. So the second thing would be, um, I think we need, and a lot of branches need this. This isn't just a Tasmanian thing. When I click around the internet, uh, we need a, good, a full digital rebuild. Um, we are not set up for uh, communicating and engaging with people online in a way that is expected in 2022. Um, you know, we've got a technology stack that's outdated. Um, our web presence, our social media presence is not, is not where it needs to be. And that's the case for a number of branches. It's not just us here. Um, so that's the second thing I would say. And then the third thing, you know, and, and you'll love this one is I, I, I think we need to adopt a community organizing approach like the, like the, the can approach that, that, that you've worked on and, and, and piloted. Um, I think we need to adopt that in Tasmania. I think Tasmania is well suited to it. Um, I think we have a really engaged membership that would, that would be happy to take up community organizing and would love to be trained in it. Um, and I think it can make a real difference in how we get back in touch with those working class voters that we're losing, but also how we start to talk to these other parts of the coalition, you know, the, the kind of the middle class tertiary educated progressives and, and how we, what you do then through community organizing, as you know, is not, it's not just about getting people to vote for you. It's about understanding what the commonalities are between those different parts of the coalition. So then when you put together your political message, you're not pitting one against the other or having to choose. You're able to find unifying threads and themes because you've had all those conversations and you've had all those house parties and you've had, you've had all those events. Um, so that's the third thing I would say that, that would be really, really beneficial for us to do over the next few years. Well, as you said, uh, like uh, in WA as well, there's, um, there's a good break now between, and in South Australia too, actually, there's a good break now between uh, the next set of elections, although I guess you've got a couple of smaller kind of ballots coming up. But in terms of the big ones, both the state election and the next federal election won't be until 2025. When's the next state election? 2025, isn't it, roughly? 2025, yeah. I mean, unless they yeah. do something crazy and go early again, but hopefully not. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you've got some time to uh, uh, unpack what happened uh, on May 21 and uh, take some learnings from that and then build from that to hopefully see a good result for both Tasmanian Labor to state level, but also the next federal election. Jack Milroy, thank you very much for coming back on the show. It's been great to see you. I know you've got to catch a flight back to Australia uh, pretty soon. So we do appreciate uh, you coming on the show. Um, Looks like beautiful weather in uh, Vancouver. I'm living vicariously through Mm -hmm. that window. I know that this is only an audio (laughs) meeting, but let me assure you, everyone listening to this podcast, that is a lovely view that Jack has found himself in. (laughs) It's very, very impressive. Um, So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. Great Great to be here again. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.